Welcome to the Acme Conversations podcast, where we explore the world of the moving image and its connections to politics, society, culture, and art. This is a recording of a live event, and it may reference visual material. You can view this on our YouTube channel. Uh, before we start, I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathered for this event tonight, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I want to pay my deepest respects to their elders, past, present and future, and I would like to extend that respect to those from other nations that might be present today. And a big welcome to you all for being here tonight, and also for those of you watching on YouTube. I'm Tanya from Public Programs, and it is my absolute delight to introduce tonight's Acme Conversations talk, Beyond the Binary. Now, if you don't know already, Acme Conversations is a series of talks covering such fertile ground as the world around us, politics, society, and culture, all seen through the eyes of the moving image. The way this tonight will run is with a panel discussion, which will run for about an hour, and then we'll have approximately a 20-minute Q&A session. So if you have any questions at all, please feel free to save them until then. Um, and also, I should mention that we could also have the conversation in the Acme Cafe afterwards if you had the time, so please join us there. Uh, we have our last conversations next Tuesday. It's called Anime and Feminism. And it'll be a fascinating discussion about the role of heroes in anime. As always, the talk starts at 6.30 right here in Studio One, and you can book your tickets online as you've probably already done for this event. But tonight, we are all here tonight to, to broach the representation of gender diversity on screen and how it has evolved, if it has evolved at all. Fortunately, we are blessed with a wonderful and downright interesting panel of prominent artists, critics, festival directors, and filmmakers. By name, they are Benji Ra, Cerise Howard, and Amos Gebhardt. Heading up the discussion tonight is Babuk Sayed. Babuk Sayed is a writer, multidisciplinary artist, and advocate for the Afghan diaspora. They co-edit Archer, Archer Magazine and have written for Overland, Kill Your Darlings, and Vice. Ara Festival regular, having performed at Edinburgh at um, Emerging Writers Festival, Melbourne Writers Festival, the Village Festival, and Melbourne Fringe. They founded the Queer Trans People of Colour Artist Collective Colour Tongues and are a member of the performance collective Embattered Swish. So we are very glad that Babok has made time in all that busyness to lead this discussion tonight. So without any further ado, please join me in welcoming Babok. Thank you, Tanya. Um, before I begin, um, just facilitating this very casual conversation amongst um, us all, I will just reiterate that uh, we are meeting on um, the lands of the Bunurong and Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and that we pay our respects to elders past and present. Um, in conjunction with that, I'd like to um, acknowledge that yesterday was Trans Day of Remembrance, a day of mourning and contemplation for many trans and gender diverse people across the world. And that we hold that um, truth to be self-evident and that um, for trans and gender diverse people, um, the, the day of mourning um, for our ancestors, for our sisters of color um, and others is not contained by one day, but actually spans every day, and we hold that with us. Um, I don't have everyone's bio, so I will just introduce um, Benji Ra, Amos Gebhardt, and Cerise Howard, who are our wonderful um, panelists for this evening. Um, so the kind of conversation that we're going to be kind of discussing tonight is fusing our own critical artistic practice with our own kind of um, perspectives on how media representations have at once failed us historically and whether or not we're satisfied with how things have changed and um, how 
gender and transgender futurisms can be envisioned, dismantled, reshaped, and circulated in like new and radical um, economies of the future. So to begin, I guess, I wanted to maybe just start out by asking what the first um, representations of transness we each um, recall from childhood being exposed to. <laughs> Hi. Um, uh, what was uh, my first um, image of transness? And I think transness was so, uh, it's such a broad, big, beautiful, fluid um, thing that has so much energy and space to kind of be manifested into so many things. So it was definitely like Ariel, like mm. <laughs> Little Mermaid. Um, it was definitely like Ariel. Ariel, like who's Ariel? Like they sound really non-binary. No, it was like it was like definitely like Ariel, like Little Mermaid. And then probably followed by like Pocahontas, mm. and then. Um, Mulan, and then somehow in the mix was like also like Chang Li. Um, but those are kind of like the images because I think like I was just watching Pocahontas the other day and I was like, wow, like these kind of like characters that display like these kind of gender non conforming like they, they kind of like had these gender non conforming roles within their kind of like little society. Like they're, little, mm. they're, they're expected to be the princess, but they're like low key like running off with the white man or something like that. Um, <laughs> which is not what I was attracted to, but that's <laughs> another thing. Um, and there was also that kind of like mystery around gender, especially with mermaids. Cartoon-wise, that was that. Um, but I was speaking with um, Yal about this before, that I don't know if you guys remembered um, something about Miriam? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so some of the heads, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, something about Miriam was this um, TV show. It was like kind of like a bachelorette style, um, reality show like from the UK and it kind of followed um, Miriam Rivera. Oh, yes. Is she on the screen? Because I can see her here. Loki like hella trans like <laughs> super transphobic so like if anyone gets triggered, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, so this was I'm um, Miriam Rivera and she was uh, she was actually like um, she was a sex worker from Mexico and they had asked her to come onto the show to follow her around and have these guys come on the show not knowing about um, her being trans. And then of course, we all knew about there was something about Miriam. Oh my God, what is it? And then Rise like, oh. And then at the end, it's like, um, it's like, oh my God, like you're the winner. And the dude's like, oh yeah, like fantastic. And then the host, it's so fucked. Like, I'm like, how did this shit happen? Um, and then the host is like, oh Miriam, you want to say something? And she's, you can tell, she's like, Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I was born a, a guy. And everyone's like, oh my god, like, what the fuck, what the fuck, what the fuck? And it's like, so bad. And it's just, I was like, ugh. Um, and of course, it kind of like, from that kind of like 90s like reality TV show, probably perpetuated all the shit like that trans women have to deal with, with um, just like all of that kind of taboo that comes in society with like dating trans women, like, you know, the whole like, hey, would you if you knew that kind of shit? Mm -hmm. um, and it's just like constant and it's like super tired mm -hmm. and um, it still goes on. But besides like perpetuating all of that bullshit, Miriam Rivera was, <laughs> I'm talking mad hate, sorry. But Miriam Rivera was like this like shining beacon for me. Like I was mm -hmm. like, who is this like, um, who is this woman? Like, and I was in U4 when it was on TV and I did my, like, I did a project about her, like for school. <laughs> and I was like, I think I was like also gagging that she, like that she was trans. I was like, and I was spilling her tea as well. I was mm. like, yeah, she was born a boy and look at her now, like that kind of thing. <laughs> so I think she was, um, we talk about this thing of like this kind of problematic representation and then yet somehow visibility kind of filters through for the girls or for the the trans uh, community who are, um, you know, who are starting to mould their idea of identity as a, as a young person. And it's not always positive, but some that somehow it leads you to something that's, you know, affirming. Mm. I don't know. Yeah, I want to play this clip. It's like, okay, go for it. <laughs> it's so annoying. <laughs> <laughs> 
And the winner is Tom to the winner! <laughs> Tom's just beaten Scott to win the Heart of Miriam, but he's about to find out that she's been hiding one big secret. Tom, congratulations. How do you feel? Yeah, brilliant, fantastic, amazing, great. Great. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the bay, there's a luxury cruiser waiting for you and Miriam with £10,000. But before you claim the prize, Miriam has something to say. Guys, this has been a whole new experience for me and a such a great time. And I will never, never forget this moment. I try to be honest with all of you as much as I can. Yes, I'm from Mexico, I'm a model, and I'm 21. But, Tom, I really love spending time with you and kissing you. You see, I love men, and I love being a woman. <laughs> but, shh, quiet, everybody, please. Quiet. Sit Tom. I'm not a woman. Oh, Dude, I, do, I, I, I was born as a man. Shut up. <laughs> right. She didn't choose you, bitch. Why are you talking? Well, I'm obviously shocked, as you can guess, so... I don't know, really. I'm kind of lost for words. For once. Anyway, he says yes. Well, it's, gonna end the it's a big it's shock, like, <laughs> but it's, it's a like shock that still leads to the decision. They milk it. It's said, like, he says yes, of course, like $10,000, like fucking yacht, like, mm. Miriam, hello. Um, but also, again, like, a trans woman of color put into that situation. Mm. And I think I even, like, watching that then, I actually remember feeling, like, actually so, like, devastated. or like, some sort of, like, sickness as a kid, like, mm. even hearing that and mm. being like, you don't even deserve her. Mm. And, um, and... Just like, just from some facts, actually Miriam dropped the show and then went back to sex work um, and then was thrown off a four-level um, four hotel by her client and survives. And um, yeah, like, fuck. I think that's just like this kind of like reality of like life and like mm. what we like kind of represent as this kind of like a novelty or this like um, there's novelty reality TV show that can be kind of made for every like benefit for that moment and then there's like oh there's like also like our reality like we're getting thrown off like for like a, a four story building. Mm. Um, also, she's just, she's fucking fat. Mm. And um, the voyeurism involved in like her having to disclose that under words that are not her own in front of like a national audience as though it is mm -hmm. the audience's yes. entitlement to have yes. that information. I feel like yes. it's really, it's a metaphor. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's very, very uh, tragic yeah. that that has happened. And it's like, I, I hope that perhaps we move past mm -hmm. it, but you know, really you never can totally trust entertainment yes. industry the whole real. secret yeah and it just it kept on perpetuating mm. big brother australia brought her out and she mm. had to hide her secret and then reveal it and it was like the same shit every time mm. anyway she's my girl <laughs> so, so, True. Uh, yeah um.
My childhood. I grew up in um, a country town, um, actually on a farm. So I had a lot of kind of space to explore my um, gender expression and, and who I was. And it wasn't a public space, so it was very expansive, private space that I was able to kind of learn the edges of the world through my own understanding. And the only films that I was kind of absorbing at the time were things that I could get from the um, VHS store from the country town, and that was, you know heteronormative classics like Dirty Dancing and Top Gun. So my palette wasn't terribly broad at that, um, at that stage. And then when I moved to the city, that was when I discovered um, you know, this idea of gender policing being, being a really real thing. Because when I went to high school, I was, I was very much um, not able to kind of express myself in ways that I had felt very innate to who I was um, from, from my you know, ways that I'd grown up. So there was quite a um, painful learning about this gender codification that happened on a personal level. And it was, um, it was then that I, at the same time, I, I guess I fell in love with cinema because I discovered SBS and um, art house <laughs> cinema. So after all my sisters went to bed and my mum went to bed, I got on the telly and, and, and discovered John Waters and um, Moldavar and Fassbender and um, Sally Potter's Orlando. And it was these films that I guess helped to, to inform me that there were reflections of me and, and the way that I kind of was wanting to express myself in these marginalised, but there's still these stories um, in cinema. And I think what shaped me at that time, I guess, is um, this urgency to want to continue to um, question normative notions of humanness um, in my work, but also um, the way that we also are very much codified around the way we tell stories too and the construction of, of meaning can become extremely controlled too. So I think in my work I've, I've been wanting to um, combine this, this interest in questioning gender normativity and, and also homogenisation of humanness with also um, providing a defiance and a resistance to codified ways of narrative structure as well. So I think, you know, those early... Those early Snippets, although there was politically, you know, there was some problematic representation of um, gender diversity in, in some of those early films, they, they really helped inform a freer notion for me of what was possible, not only in my personal expression, but also in, in my art. Um, Sarit? Uh, um, so, look, backstory to I grew up in Wellington, New Zealand, and uh, quite a remove from anything remotely approximating queer culture as I understand it today. And my, my first real uh, recollection of anything particularly trans was just being told no. When I was just playing with some little girlfriends when I was very little, just, just told no, don't wear that. And uh, messages that get reinforced over a long time are simply, uh, these certain behaviours are acceptable, these are not. And generally, I was uh, interested in staying uh, alive as a child and as a, a teen, and, and generally cast aside an awful lot of uh, what would become to partly, well, a large part, define me later in life. But I was still always attracted to the images that I, I am now especially besotted with, which are those of people who are gender nonconformist. And they were rampant in my youth, in fact, whether it was Bugs Bunny in drag on, on Warner Brothers cartoons, or there was uh, seeing the Rocky Horror Picture Show on television in New Zealand at some point, and actually seeing a live theatrical presentation with, of all people, uh, an extremely right-wing previous prime minister as a narrator, Robert Muldoon, or Piggy as he was known, <laughs> which boggles the mind in hindsight, but also makes so much sense. And, uh, <laughs> Um, and in the 80s, when I was uh, com coming into my double digits in age, was a time of uh, new romantics, of, of um, post-punk, and a lot of people really putting uh, very mixed gender messages into their video clips, which is this new art form that was coming into its own in the 80s. And so, from, I mean, I actually weirdly wasn't quite so drawn to the Boy Georges and Marilyns of this world as I was more to people like Divine when I saw 
um, that, that video clip. Um, you think you're a, oh, so you think you're a, I'm a, you think you're a, who's man, a man? That, I can't boy. even remember who you think you're. You're a man. You're only a boy. Yeah, yeah. That's it. I can't remember who was the man or the boy. It doesn't <laughs> yeah. almost it matter in a way. Just that the whole idea is that there are other possibilities. Yeah, yeah. And um, all manner of things that were kind of going over my head, but also registering on some level. And then uh, as a Kiwi, just seeing it, uh, part of my memory early on, uh, very early split ends video clips, and they dressed in this way that I now understand comes from various German cabaret traditions and German expressionism. There was a lot of chaps running around in amazing makeup and amazing costumes and great flamboyance, and that, that registered with me. Um, the first time I think I, I was really aware of something very trans, uh, specifically where, where the language of transgender was utilised, though this was still in the early days too, on television was a, a British documentary about male cross-dressers and the women who love them. And I was actually very encouraged that there are women who love them. I thought that's very interesting. <laughs> but also I thought no one must ever find out I've just watched this or that I was interested in it. And I watched it in the family home just furtively and, and then spoke about it to no one for years. Uh, before eventually, when you know, I was a bit of a, a slow one to twig in my late 20s, that I actually you know, set upon a path of transitioning. Um, comedy, uh, Eddie Izzard was somebody who spoke hugely to me. Um, somebody who defined uh, themselves as heterosexual, but interested in women, and who dressed extremely androgynously, and fe or femininely, transfemininely. And what I find fascinating about Eddie overall to this day is that, uh, in, in language, which we're, I think we'll, we'll watch a clip in just a moment, the language he utilises here to try to explain who he is, is very different to language we utilise now, because our language is constantly evolving about how we define ourselves. And what he says here, I think, sounds a bit weird to 2017, but it, uh, the sentiments are spot on. And this, he, he was really key for me to find out who, who I was, because um, I know that I'm not actually Eddie. I went then, then down a different path again, and then down some other little uh, cul-de-sacs, and then bow to them, and down some other diversions. And yeah, it's still a journey. But um, perhaps if we could just throw to, I, I'm not sure exactly which of the two Eddie clips we've got synced up here, but either of them are gold. So um, yeah, thanks, Travis. This one will do nicely. Anyway, so yeah, so da, 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 boom, boom, boom. and yeah, also if you're transvestite, you get lumped into that weirdo grouping. You know, that there was a guy in the Bronx when I was in New York. There was a guy in the Bronx. He was living in a cave, like you do, and uh, <laughs> and he was coming out and he was shooting at geese and uh, a lot of weird things going on with this guy. And they found in his cave, the police picked him up. They found a collection of women's shoes and they thought, well, maybe he's a transvestite. And if he is, he's a fucking weirdo transvestite. <laughs> I'm much more in the executive transvestite area. <laughs> Travel the world, yes. It's much more executive. Like J. Edgar Hoover, what a fuckhead he was. <laughs> they found out when he died he was a transvestite, and they go, well, that explains his weird behavior. Yeah, fucking weirdo transvestite. <laughs> executive transvestite. <laughs> it's a lot, lot wider community, more wide than you'd think. Yes. And um, I grew up in Europe, where the history comes from. And. Uh... Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's Eddie addressing America. Uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, a hugely influential figure uh, to me. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think an interesting point, and I think what we are kind of involved in now is kind of like uh, workers in these uh, creative fields is kind of rectifying the errors and failures of our early childhoods to um, accurately and affirmatively like represent our bodies, our narratives, our histories, etc. And I think, especially with uh, someone like Rocky Horror, I feel that was one of my earliest uh, exposures. And I feel like Frankenfurter is like a very wonderful depiction of like a freaky transvestite, an anti-assimilationist transvestite, and someone whose gender expression um, and performativity is not palatable. Um, so that's just a little aside from the facilitator. <laughs> um, but like, so what we what we know is that in perhaps in the last couple of years, five years or so, we've seen a spike in the representation of trans and gender diverse um, people in media and TV, 
shows like Transparent, you know, uh, Orange is a New Black, like we're seeing them more and more, even Monroe Bergdorf, like they are more visible perhaps, we have always been here, but like perhaps more visible is something that we can agree upon. So I wanted to kind of throw it to you all and maybe get a discussion of some sort going on why you think and what factors you think are behind this recent spike in visibility. Isn't it just like capitalism? Mm. <laughs> Isn't it? Isn't it just like the kind of like the turning point is um, kind of in relation to also capitalism and just understanding that um, when society turns, cap like the capitalist world turns with it. Mm. So whatever they can, yeah. I don't know if you guys want to jump on that, but I just, yeah. Yeah, and I think. Oh, is there also kind of like a positive? Um, <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, it's positive, but it's like it's also um, it's like super American and Western world led, and mm -hmm. like it's such a globe. So it's. Um, so I'm, I'm suspicious of it because I understand a big history of trans people of colour in outside of that kind of really turning the point. Mm. But then you have this kind of Western-led thing and then that's just, it's always just so capital as well. Mm. There. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, and I think whenever a marginalised community is, is seeking representation, there's always that, that pressure to kind of dumb down identity, but I think it's, it's really important to be able to own and continue resistance and dissonance despite the, the visibility to, to, to not actually become invisible in your visibility. Yeah. Which is, um, it's hard when there's this, there is this pressure from, um, I guess, capitalist world to, to spice up their stories with, with transness or with um, gender diversity and when there isn't a kind of integrity to that representation, when there hasn't been um, consultation that involves co-authorship or, or the power centre of the actual story residing in the, the community itself, then it's it can quickly turn to exploitation. So, yeah, I think this needs very careful um, consideration when we're looking at a, a growing visibility in the mainstream world. Well, I think uh, the uh, online communities, uh, so there's forms of community that couldn't exist before the advent of the internet have been uh, tremendously helpful. I mean, occasionally we encounter hostility in those spaces as well, but tremendously helpful in finding like people. So when I first started to twig that I was perhaps um, trans in some fashion or other, discovering that there were any number of other people of similar uh, disposition, uh, sense of questioning about themselves and the greater world, and, and that the huge, uh, as it turns out, a great vastness of different ways of gender expression across cultures, across the entire world. Suddenly armed with that sort of information that was nowhere near as accessible before the internet, um, it's made a huge difference. You suddenly found other people and then you perhaps met some of them in, in real life as well, but generally you had a means of exchanging information. And by degrees, I think identities were more strongly forged through uh, a sense of that community where we are now with social media in particular, um, we can become actually quite tribal, which has its strengths uh, as well as its weaknesses. But we, we know that we um, are many, in fact, and, and diverse. We know that there are many different uh, modes of gender expression and identity and, and, and relations with the, the cultural paradigms we're born in. And, and it's given us some strength and it's also given people out there, I think the sense that ours are stories that are very interesting and, and sometimes, you, I think, yes, extremely exploitative, the way people might want to market our stories to um, audiences that are often not us, because after all, we are a minority and there's not always great uh, millions to be made in making things for minorities, mm. but at the same time, uh, our stories are often quite remarkable. They are journeys and people are always interested in quest narratives. And it can get a bit problematic when it's kept very binary where someone, simply the idea is the narrative, the quest is to go from this state to this state. So maybe from one particular binary pole to another. But um, you know, increasingly I think there's a lot more uh, gradation to that appearing in narratives and, and the trans experiences are becoming a lot more broadly represented um, 
and some of that's making the mainstream and some of it by degrees, I, I feel there's a real groundswell for people to, to cast trans and gender diverse actors so that we see seeing things that I think are kind of abominable like um, cisgender actors receiving Oscars for their performance in the other gender. Uh, I think it's really uh, terrible. It's just a simply a conspicuous performance and you're watching someone mm -hmm. perform rather than be, and I'm all for seeing being. It sounds kind of contrary because I still want to see people act and perform, but I, I don't want to see, oh, uh, Eddie Redmayne, I'm watching Eddie Redmayne acting. I want to see someone acting. If you know what I mean, there's quite a difference between it's sort of a meta performance or a performance, and I want to see the performance. Yeah, I think you're so right in that there are um, ample causes for suspicion. You know, when we see the uptake of uh, trans narratives in popular culture and mainstream media, um, it definitely warrants like severe interrogation into like whose interests it serves, who's benefiting from like the social capital of having a trans cast member, not to mention how they're actually being depicted and what kind of stereotypes that's feeding into. Um, so I guess that leads pretty well onto my next question, which is, um, is well, with, with reference to, um, you know, certain media channels, quite constantly like um, popping off with news of trans women of colour being murdered um, and steeped in kind of like narratives of suffering and pain. Um, is all coverage good representation? Um, I think I just want to back from what Cerise was saying before um, and then I'll come to this. Um, but yeah, I think it was like that kind of thing, like the self-authorship, and I think, or like this kind of agency that um, communities have when they start to find each other on kind of within like the online online world, and I think that's that is where that momentum comes from. That you know, media sees them doing their own thing and then growing and expanding and really starting to identify themselves and um, there's like that real collective action um, and I'm, I think that's like what like I think that's for me is like the heart of representations because we kind of understand ourselves to represent ourselves like how can anyone else represent ourselves besides us um, and then that the kind of suspicion is always like yeah, it's just kind of questions around why, like, like why, why would you want to? And what was your question? Well, like, <laughs> let me let me skip it. <laughs> um, just concerning how uh, represent is all coverage, media coverage, right, yes, good yeah. representation. What is it doing for our stories, our histories? I'm not sure. I, I, I sometimes I I think like, I mean a lot of bullshit happens and a lot gets out and then I think I just kind of like hope that calls on for the critical voice to kind of like come in for that conflict and then to kind of more so generate you know more more understanding around the issue so it's kind of like well my voice is like god right now I love it um yeah Amos <laughs> well I mean I think it's interesting um you know, you've talked about relating to reality television show, knowing the transphobic kind of context of it, but still somehow there was some resonance that helped you in that right, moment. Exactly. And so even though yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, if you can recognise and strip yeah. back, that not saying those transphobic um, representations should continue, absolutely not. But um, and I think there needs to be, you know, a kind of pedagogical process where um, dominant culture is able to really truly listen to um to to why and how these constructs yeah. that do dominate um the representation at the moment is um is problematic and sometimes we you know the onus appears to be on us to deconstruct this and, and educate as, to, as yeah. to why things are problematic and um you know even the film tangerine i've got the clip of that can we just play tangerine the, the trailer <coughs> Hey, what's happening? Come here. Listen, have you seen 
Oh yeah, she's back. She's back and she's going hard. Merry Christmas, bitch. Woo! <laughs> I got some good news to tell you about me and Chester. I know what it is. You're breaking up with him. Thank God. I'm gonna be cheating on you like that. Wait, 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 what? You, you didn't know? Hmm. White, white. Who is she? Her name starts with a D. Danny. Desiree. Destiny? You're making me lose my game. She's some white fish. That's her and she don't mean real fish. Yeah, bitch, like a real fish, girl, like vagina and everything. Girl, calm the fuck down. It's not that serious. I will go with you under one condition. You must promise me that there's not going to be any drama. I promise. I promise. Look at me in my eyes and promise. I promise no drama, Alexandria. Whoa! What the fuck? Oh, boy. Does your friend ever shut up? No, that bitch been talking ever since I met her. Why does he owe you money? We made a business transaction. You're not even hard yet. Fucking hard. That's hard. Chester. Since him. Who's your man? Who's hot piece for you? Cindy, what do you see in him? Talk to me. We've been out of jail for 24 hours. She's already causing drama. She called the police. The cops are coming. Come on, girl. Out here, it is all about our hustle. And that's it. This motherfucking girl thing. We're doing this now? Yeah. I love a microphone. Um, did you like leave this like being like, oh my God, I wonder if the person was a cis white guy? The director. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was going to go on and talk about that. Um, yeah, so the director is a cis white man and um, and is also credited with another cis white man as writing this work. And I think um, from what I've read that, that he did engage with consultation with these two incredible performers who, who completely hold this film and the, the spine of this work is their bristling liveliness, their, their performances are so radiant. But there's no um, question about authorship, which I think does need to be raised because the, the, the two women in the, in the work did um, give their stories, give their vernacular, give their time um, to reveal and, and form this spine of the work. And, it seems to me to be quite unethical, I suppose, to not then um, continue the through line of that process to credit them as co-authors of the work and for the trickle through of of the proceeds of the film to go to them. So it, it's it's a wonderful film, but I think there are questions about the code of ethics around a, a film like this. Yeah, there are. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Let there be no doubt about that. Um, but still, uh, at the very least, we had actual trans people in the in the film. I, I know we're still going to see more and more cisgender cast folk as trans and gender diverse people, and it's always going to be problematic. It, uh, I had an interesting chat some months back. I, I got I was fortunate enough to meet uh, Research, who's one of the producers of Transparent, a show which is now embroiled in its own problems. Actually, we we might touch on yet, I don't suppose. Um, he, he was asked, as were many people, to actually contribute to, um, to, to be part of a consultation process with the Danish girl, this extremely prestigious film that eventually won an Oscar for a cisgender actor playing um, not just a trans character, but a trans pioneer, somebody, in fact, who was so much a pioneer that they were so far ahead of there being even any notion of a trans identity as such. There was a a paradigm that didn't even really exist yet, which isn't to say that gender diversity didn't exist yet, but just the idea of um, someone being, a, let's say, a post-operative trans person. And um, uh, where was I going with this? I've already forgotten. Sorry, I'm very jet-lagged. I've just flown into the country that's, this morning. That's OK. Um, uh, I think Danish Girl. Oh, God, I hate that film. Uh, I did. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yes, representation being um, key. So, 
Look, as long as the Academy, and by that I don't just mean the Academy Awards, but all of the uh, the institution that has the power in especially mainstream cinema rewards actors for putting on conspicuous performances, conspicuous by virtue of them playing against their native gender, uh, the longer this sort of thing will be problematic because I don't think these people should be rewarded. I think it's... Um, uh, it, it, in, on an industrial level alone, there are trans actors out there who, who will not get cast in non-trans roles, and yet cisgender actors will get cast in trans roles and then in these prestigious films which are Oscar bait, and I think it's it's just grossly unfair and unethical, so um, there will always be problematic representation from that aspect just to start with. Um, and look, I don't doubt that our lives will continue to be sensationalised um, from time to time. It'll still be a scandal when a known, uh, say, celebrity, like I remember Eddie Murphy sometime in the 90s, was pulled over for um, having picked up a trans sex worker and he made all these noises about all, all the right noises at the time, apologised, oh, I, I was just giving her a lift home, uh, that we weren't up to anything, of course not, I mean, come on, I'm Eddie Murphy, a famously homophobic comedian, in fact, if you've ever seen some of those early um, VHSs they were in the day, horrifying. Mm. So um, there's still room for it to be extremely problematic at the same time for the the likes of us, even seeing anyone who is of our sort, there's still some degree of affirmation because we know, oh, there are others. But I think we're at a stage now where we um, we don't necessarily need to see negative representations, except in as much as I come back to the point I originally meant to make, I was speaking with research about the idea that, so way back in the day, trans people or anyone who had gender uh, deviation was in a narrative were psychopaths, they were killers, or, or there'd be murders, one or the other. They're at either end of the murder equation. In a way, we want to be able to see that happen again. We want to be able to see trans people be maniacs. We want to be able to see unglamorous portrayals. It's just they have to go through this process of somehow redeeming the identity to make it palatable in order that we can once again actually have richer roles. I mean, villains always get the best lines in any film. They are the most charismatic characters. So just this, and that was something he was always grappling with in his work with Transparent and elsewhere. That it wants um, that we want to be able to have trans people have the full depth of uh, expression available to non-trans people. We want to be able to be bad, good, and especially places in between. That was my original point. I got there eventually. Thank you for bearing with me. <laughs> and I think I was a bit like. Um, unsure of how to answer this kind of like question, like whether all representation is good representation or whatever. But um, I think it's like that kind of like need for such a great uh, diversity of narrative within trans people. And it's just like, uh, I know this is fucked and I know that that doesn't relate to me at all, but at least it's giving us some sort of space or something to that thing. Um, so for me all the time I'm thinking like kind of trans people of colour come on like we out here like we're not all like white transsexuals or whatever like how like that's seen in that language like from like so much of like um, Hollywood cinema um, but I mean like the image is so strong and re the visibility is so palpable and goes you know it crosses oceans and um, and class and all of those kind of things. But I just think that there's something really underlining um, that becomes super radical when we talk about like the ethics and who makes it and then how they make it and how they film us and where, like what angle, like to the smallest things that, you know, that are so much about um, the fabric of cinema. And I think that when we chat, when we begin to kind of fuck it up from the inside out, it's kind of those kind of like small, um, those small details that begin to really revolutionize how we see our bodies and how we see our identities, uh, within media. Like, I just keep on thinking about this idea of like the gays, like, you know, like how you see me, like, like I have an empowering stance on this way, but you want to put the angle on this way. And like, and it's just like, that's never how I would, you know, film myself or, you know, just, um, all that kind of stuff. Like I'm sure that's, and the ethics, exactly. Like the ethics, like who is actually like, what is a product got to do with anything? If a Marsha P. Johnson film is coming out, but all the benefits and all of like, all of the money and the capital is going to this white cis man when a trans woman 
Raina put all her work into um, archiving and finding and researching um, that like like what what has that film got to do with like how is that film being reflexive to our community it's nothing it's just out there as a, a byproduct of something really really fucked yeah that's um, a really good point and I think it's a cross to bear for all the for the global um, queer community is that often um, actually quite consistently it's trans women of color who bear this burden um, who are the ones on the front line who are the sufferers who are the unsung heroes and I think it ties into what you were mentioning earlier Cerise about the internet being a frontier of activism whereby if it weren't for the internet um, we would still be having cis actors playing trans roles in fetishistic and exoticizing ways but because of our like grassroots activism there has been some incremental change in how representation is uh, delivered. I guess we probably have time for about one more question and I want to ask um, something that relates to what we've been talking about earlier in the panel about how um, non-binary genders in film and TV are kind of obscured by binary trans people who um, who are often depicted and who like the, the industry really loves to depict um, transitioning or much better fully transitioned because it really seems like there's market and a desire and a real like like a real diet and appetite for this this notion of transition and like resolution so I want to just like pass it down and like see what you think and how that relates to your own practice um, yeah, well, I, I think there is an obsession with um, that narrative of a fully transitioned story um, because I think it's still a reflection of a policing of some kind of binary. So you, you might, okay, well, accept you, you, you're not a man, but therefore that must be mean that you're moving to the polar opposite. And it, in, in reality, that's not the case. And it, it can be the case, but it's certainly not always the case. And so I think there's this... Um, still degrees of ignorance and control and gender codification that's taking place when you see that obsession with the, the fully transitioned person or a passing person. And those terms are actually really violent terms um, for, for gender diverse people because it really shows um, a lot of erasure of experience and erasure of identities of people who, who wish to um, position themselves uh, beyond and in between those two polar um, binaries. And I think that it'd be, you know, it'd be a great place for us to get where those two binaries aren't the kind of nav navigational reference points anymore for gender, that they're just gone and we, we can kind of have a much more expansive notion of gender. Um, so for me, I've, I've, I've wanted to work with um, challenging gender normativity in, in the work that I do. I've moved into video art in the last couple of years and I worked on a um, film last year, a video installation called There Are No Others and that was an attempt on my behalf to challenge the, the canon of nude portraiture in, in the Western art history, um, which is, always seems to have an obsession with um, the binary. So for me, I, I wanted to um, make a work that was able to depict a type of gender euphoria and to... Um, to show um, this expression of gender as being something that can be exultant and um, that can e exist outside of this binary and, and, and be a pleasure to watch and, and to be. Um, so I, I photographed people um, against, against the sky and I was very interested in the sky being emblematic of a view of gender being infinite and expansive and the idea of the clouds being in a state of flux, as gender can be as well. It needn't be concretized and straight-jacketed. It can be something that's always shifting and something that could be very fluid. Um, so, yeah, that was a that was a wonderful process for me to be able to engage with the, with my community to, to make this work. Um, what was the question? <laughs> was that the question? Have I answered yeah, yeah, it? Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> um, Did you have anything else to say on that? Um, I don't think so. No. Uh, something about our own practice, wasn't it? How we, yeah, 
Um, so, I mean, one of the fields I work in is as a film critic and film programmer, and wherever possible, I look to queer that up as much as I can. So, a, a weekly radio show and podcast at a three triple called Plato's Cave, we, we look whenever possible to incorporate uh, queer cinema. For example, Funeral Parade of Roses, which uh, I know is still screening here at Acme and has a, yeah, uh, oh, I can see it here. Screening on, I think, next, next Monday, an extraordinary Japanese film from the late 60s, formally extraordinary, but also just ahead of its time in, uh, in, in representation of, of gender diversity. Um, I mean, there was a whole extraordinary underground of, of filmmaking going on at around that time around the world, but I think all of it in a very far pre-internet age, all of it just sort of quite atomized. It's amazing that all these people like Jack Smith in the US as well, or um, oh, I forget the name of the Japanese filmmaker here, but just that... Matsumoto. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again? Matsumoto. Thank you. Uh, that, that, that people were just looking into that those these very underground worlds and then really celebrating them too they're not turning this into some sort of freak show as um a lot of uh mainstream cinema of the time would do which would demonstrate which would show any gender um uh, non-normativity as being indicative of uh, murderous tendencies or um, and anyway, that carried on at least as far as Silence of the Lambs and, and, and beyond. It's, uh, it became just a real trope, which is fortunately on its way out. Um, I, I also work as, in, as a musician and, and sort of spoken word performer, and I'm in a, a band presently called Queen Kong and the Homo Sapiens, which is led by an alter ego of Yana Alana as Queen Kong. And uh, that gives me an avenue and will again in future to give some spoken word um, uh, pieces just uh, addressing the the role that uh, the in incredibly integral role that gender uh, nonconformity has in rock and roll um, uh, and in comedy because it's also a comedic show that the, the Queen Kong shows and um, rock and roll is unimaginable without its its gender rebels from and, and this actually comes into people of color too i mean let's not forget that rock and roll to begin with is an appropriative art form it, it's all based on music uh, that was first birthed by people of color especially in the u.s but that's come from africa and beyond originally too and it's um one of the great original pioneers of rock and roll little richard was an extremely gender um a diverse human being and um, and he wasn't alone there was a whole whole lot of people who came from a queer underground that birthed rock and roll rock and roll is innately queer and it, now and again that comes to the surface the 80s were a golden age I think for queerness in rock and roll and I just absorbed that matter of factly without even grasping it was queer growing up now I appreciate it all the more um, and uh, so I, I look to just make sure that that is communicated in, in through that particular outlet. So, yeah, that's one of my my uh, things for the moment. Mm. I think the West. I think this binarized logic is so Western-led, and I think that there's such such an obsession in the in the West, and like it's just um, and within Europe, and like that kind of. Th an ongoing idea of the binary is, you know, it just perpetuates in Western patriarchal systems. Um, uh, and I guess in my work and in my friend's work and most of that kind of stuff is, I don't know if there's, the, I don't think the link, does the link work, Travis? Travis, you there? Did I send you a link to my work? Anyway, so, oh my God, it's working, work. You can like play it in silence. <gasps> okay. Sorry. From creation. But um yeah, the password's there, right? But um yeah, so basically we were kind of like looking at you know, within our new videos that we've started doing, our collective called X in Along, which Justin Shoulder is a part of. We're really trying to like trying to decenter what queerness is from the Western framework. Um, 
and looking at our lens as queer Filipinos of what really kind of gender is and identity and sexuality, which is something that's quite fluid and super ancient and has been um, been gathering itself. Uh, it's been gathering itself for years and years and years. And I, actually, until the um, intersection of colonization and the first contact was that it was it began to kind of be labeled and have definitions and these things that were so fluid and communal began to um, be demonized as something that was from the patriarchal uh, Spanish colonization perspective something extremely evil and highly threatening so we were we I mean this is a performer, Jai Jai, and she is, um, you know, she's from a village in the South Islands of the Philippines, and she performs these roles as these mythological creatures. And there's something extremely weaponizing about that because these mythological creatures are our folklore that was proper, like that was originally propaganda from the Spanish, um, from the Spanish friars. That these women who were had long tongues and that would fly off and, you know, and half their bodies and fly into the sky and eat babies and stuff were actually, yeah, were propaganda for women who were sexually liberated and basically people who were gender non-conforming. So I think for us with this kind of material, it's just like beginning to imagine a new world, beginning to kind of imagine a future where these kind of like, it's, yeah, I mean, it's like the West, I keep on talking about it, but it's like that Western-led um, logic is so suppressive for so many identities outside of that especially for people of color especially even trans like trans the word trans like where does that why is that so centered around this english word and how and how can we begin to make room and possibility for outside of that yeah that's a very valid point um I think um, we probably have time for one more question, and I'll um, just draw it in from what we've been talking about today. Um, and it's kind of like designers and directors of our own artistic practices, which are varied, um, but which do center um, gender nonconforming bodies generally. I guess I want to ask what responsibility we have to kind of steer the narratives of gender nonconformity, trans, um, bakla, um, et cetera, away from one of suffering and trauma and pain, which is what we um, actually still see today. Um, just looking through the like annals of uh, trans representation in film and TV, there's no like secondary trans character whose parents love her and who just is like trans and that's just her story. It's like she is suffering, she is harassed, she is beaten, she is abused, she might succeed, but those trials and tribulations are always intricately trapped, tied up in her life. And to, to misrepresent that and pretend like that's not a part of our experience would also be an inaccuracy, but doesn't encompass the nuance and complexity of our beauty, of our, of our, of our community, of our joy. And so I kind of want to ask how we, in our work, kind of make space for that nuance and that complexity. I don't know if it's my work yet, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like, I just want to see love. Like, I want to see mad love and relationships. Like, think, I was like, oh my God. Like, I got triggered from that Miriam thing because I was like, shit. Like, that's how I look at guys now. And I feel like that relationship with, like, cis men is, like, has perpetuated in my life. So, I mean, like, what would happen if you, you, if you did have these kind of, like, relationships that were represented that were, you know, were radically normative? Ugh. like you know what I mean that's really weird like it's but it's kind of like it's not heteronormative but it's kind of radically normative in a way because it kind of fucks with the binary without kind of talking about it or something you know it's like kind of like this kind of silence of like you know silently fucking it up um yeah uh yeah well I, I think is it on Oh, it's on. Um, um, yeah, I think what, what, what's normal for 
a community is different, I guess, um, and that's the type of storytelling perhaps that we need to take to um, the the greater world. Um, but I, I guess I think there's still a chance for us to keep a sense of resistance to um, becoming normalised within the more mainstream context because I think there's a really important role that the gender diverse community has in continuing to throw up cultural horizons which we can all as a collective continue to strive towards and that's in exploding ideas of... Um, you know, these codified ways that we're supposed to be conditioned into behaving. So I, th I think uh, I would hate to see the gender-diverse community kind of dumbing down its radicalness because I think it's really important part that benefits everybody, actually. Um, and what was the second tier of that question? Um, I can't remember. In, in, in work, yeah, gosh. Um, oh, I might over to you and just have a think about that. Well, I, mean, I think part of this project, this greater project, is for people who who might imagine themselves uh, heteronormative to grasp that they themselves uh, have a gender that isn't necessarily a stable thing, that there's no such thing as a binary gender altogether. Um, I mean, this is my feeling that people... I mean, as soon as you, a lot of people grasp male, female, and they think, oh, yeah, okay, so then there's masculine, feminine, and that the notion that everyone is as masculine as everyone else or everyone is as feminine as everyone else is, of course, patently absurd. And that's from one one day to the next, things change. So uh, what, why... Um, uh, I mean, I, I think we want to probably... Uh, I'm, of course, very hesitant to speak for all of us. But we have a, a queer sensibility we want to ally to this, but I also think that the non-queer... Or at least ostensibly non-queer uh, majority of the population can also actually take something from this and grasp that they don't have to conform to these the binary ideas because they're in fact nonsense. There's there's no one thing from one culture to the next that is uniform. There's no, there's no thing that is masculine and understood as such everywhere you go in the world, whether it's how you present yourself, whether you know this gesture is read one way in one culture, it's read totally differently in another there's so much variation we are we are a great many people there's billions of us on this planet and uh, we each of us is a, a little gender diverse unit and I, I think um really it's it's much more chaotic and magnificent than people commonly even begin to dwell upon that that, that gender diversity is in all of us so um i think if there's some way to get the mainstream to grasp that they are more than just an either-or uh, proposition themselves, then I think this can all open up just for us and for everybody, and everyone can benefit from that. It can be liberating for absolutely everybody. But I'm a utopianist, so, you know, that's, uh, that's how I roll. Can I just, like, read this? Because it feels like it's perfect for this moment. But I don't know... Quick. Yes. Before Benji um, reads this excerpt, I'll just ask you to all get ready for question time and prepare and jog your memories and what we've been talking about. Back over to you. We're, yes, think of those questions. Um, Feeling Utopia, which is like the first chapter of the introduction to Jose Esteban Munez's Cruising Utopia. I don't know, has anyone read this? Yes. Work. Anyway, it's just, it really talks about this idea of like, queerness sensibility and in imagining futures of like survival and the kind of criticalness of that of the reality of now and anyway i'll just read it but um queerness is not yet here queerness is an ideality put another way we are not yet queer we never we may never touch queerness but we can feel it as the warm illumination of a horizon imbued with potentiality we have never been queer yet queerness exists for us as an ideality that can be distilled from the past and used to imagine a future. The future is queerness's domain. Queerness is structuring an educated mode of desiring that allows us to see and feel beyond the quagmire of the present. The here and now is a prison house. We must strive in the face of the here and now's totalizing rendering of reality to think and feel a then and there. Some will say that we have... A, some will say that all we have are the pleasures of this moment, 
but we must never settle for the minimal transport. We must dream and enact a new and better pleasures, other ways of being in the world, and ultimately a new world. Queerness is a longing that propels us onward beyond romances of the negative and toiling in the pre present. Queerness is that thing that lets us feel that this world is not yet enough, that indeed something is missing. And he goes on to say, queerness, queerness is essentially about the rejection of the here and now and an assistance on potentiality or concrete possibility of another world. But yeah, it's just like that super five thing of like understanding that like here and now is never going to kind of give it, it's, it's never going to be so totalizing off our queerness and our diversity. And it's kind of like, I guess within all of our works is there's always that idea of potentiality or kind of imagining the kind of possibility or just giving space to that um, space as well. Yeah. Um, thank you so much, everyone, for being a captivating and um, articulate audience. Um, thank you, Acme, as well, for hosting us. Um, I guess we will um, congregate outside a little bit. Um, and yeah, thank you all again. You've been listening to an Acme Conversations podcast. Visit acme.net.au for information about upcoming events, exhibitions and film screenings.